Welcome to Then and Now, brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We are dedicated to studying change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every other week, we interview thought leaders, historians, researchers, and policymakers about what happened then and what that means for us now. Welcome to Then and Now, sponsored by the Luskin Center for History and Policy at UCLA. I'm David Myers. I teach in the UCLA Department of History and direct the Luskin Center, whose goal is to bring the past into conversation with the present, and in doing so, to understand how we got where we are so that we can imagine alternative and better futures. Our guests today are three UCLA PhD candidates who have worked under the aegis of the Luskin Center on a report entitled Skewed Recovery, Minority Assistance Programs to Iraq in Historical Perspective. The authors of the report are Lily Hindi, a PhD candidate in Middle Eastern history, Philip Hoffman, also a PhD candidate in Middle Eastern history, and Monica Widman, a PhD candidate in political science, all at UCLA. Thanks so much for being on this episode of Then and Now, which will focus on U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East and especially foreign aid in Iraq. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Good to be here. So, um, Phil, we'll begin with you. Um, The report begins by discussing Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's speech from the Republican National Convention from August 2020, in which he said the following. In the Middle East, when Iran threatened, the president approved a strike that killed the Iranian terrorist Qasim Soleimani. This is the man most responsible for the murder and maiming of hundreds of American soldiers and thousands of Christians across the Middle East. Now, something about that sentence caught your attention. What was it? Yes. So, obviously, Pompeo's speech, which he gave from Jerusalem on a taxpayer-funded trip, um, caught the eye of a lot of people in Washington because of the potential ethics concerns that it raised. Um, But in sort of the noise of the coverage of the Republican National Convention, that one sentence stood out for me. The way he framed Qasem Soleimani, who was was the commander of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard's Special Quds Force, the way um, that Pompeo framed Soleimani's killing was not really in line with the way that Soleimani's legacy was discussed among both observers of the Middle East and leaders in the region. Now, over the past years, few years, Soleimani has obviously cultivated a range of enemies. His intervention on behalf of President Bashar al-Assad in the Syrian civil war, for instance, um, has antagonized a large numbers of predominantly Sunni Muslims because of the sectarian dimension that it added and really amplified in that conflict. But I was just watching that speech, I was really scratching my head to find instances in which either Soleimani forces affiliated um, with the Iranian-backed general had supported Christians. Um, and that was puzzling, but it does make sense along a few different ways of analysis. Um, first, you have the domestic concerns. Um, Pompeo is widely rumored to be pursuing more political opportunities after the Trump administration. Rumors have been floated about him running for Senate in Kansas or even considering a direct challenge to the presidency in 2024. So obviously comments like this serve to appeal to his evangelical base, saying that he played a hand in the Trump administration's um, efforts to protect Christians across the Middle East, even um, in the case of Soleimani, when those and that example completely fit with the reality, um, but this, this, these types of remarks have more than simply a domestic rhetorical purpose. When Pompeo was talking about targeting Qasem Soleimani, when he was talking about safeguarding the interests of Christians across the region, he was actually referring to aspects of the Trump administration's policy, which, while largely overlooked in American domestic media, have had a huge impact on that country's recovery after the eviction of Islamic State forces from Iraqi territory. So um, in the report that Lily and Monica and I wrote on we talk about these types of efforts, the ways in which the White House under Donald Trump has put their fingers on the scale of aid provided to Iraq in order to specifically benefit minority communities, mainly Christians. 
We argue that these types of skewed aid efforts into Iraq have a significant historical precedent. Most prominently, the use of humanitarian aid in the post-World War I recovery effort by then British mandatory um, authorities and the ways in which that affected communal tensions in the country. So we're looking forward to discussing the ways in which the complicated intercommunal dynamics in Iraq have been affected by Western aid, both then about a century ago in the post-World War I period and now under the Trump administration. So in essence, what you're calling attention to are two things. One, the pronounced emphasis in contemporary political discussions about rights violations the world over, um, uh, certainly in America, focusing on uh, Christians as a, or as some would say, the most beleaguered minority in the world, sort of that discursive trope. And then you're making the additional point that there are historical roots to this phenomenon. We often think of it as something very much born of the present moment, sort of this new discourse of uh, of human rights understood as uh, focused on uh, uh, the mistreatment of Christians around the world, part of sort of the large uh, Christian evangelical political uh, um, messaging that um, has been become such an important part of our uh, of our political and cultural life, and yet you want to say there are there are historical roots and. What we're going to explore over the course of our time together is uh, what those historical precedents are and what the present-day consequences uh, have been. Um, but let me ask Monica, what, what drew you to this question of foreign aid in Iraq? We know that there was a highly consequential series of developments in the year 2003, the United States invasion of Iraq, for a, a long period of time. That's all we spoke about Iraq. It's largely been out of public attention, uh, certainly during the Trump years. Um, what is it that really drew you back into this question? Uh, thank you, David. So like when Iraq is discussed, as you mentioned, in many courses and in the media, it is often discussed in the context of 9-11, the ensuing war in Iraq, the toppling of Saddam, and the growth and development of jihadism. However, in, the con- in contrast, at least in the social sciences, when countries like Kenya or Ghana are discussed, it is in the context of aid and development. The human aspect and the potential for improvement in the Middle East, and more specifically in Iraq, are often glossed over. Many terrible things happen in Iraq, but that does not mean that we should not discuss other factors that affect the everyday lives of Iraqi citizens. Um, With the displacements that have occurred within Iraq and in neighboring countries, foreign aid has the potential to make life more manageable, but yet we do not understand how it's been distributed over time. Just as there are camps in Iraq today, Uh, to accommodate internally displaced individuals. There were camps in Iraq during the British mandate period. We thought it would be a good idea to examine what happened with foreign aid then and now to not only understand how it is allocated, but potentially the future trajectory of foreign aid as there is a catastrophic looming economic crisis in Iraq um, impending. So we just want to see what we can learn from the past that could help us better understand the current period and what we should potentially do in the future. Right. And I just wonder if I could follow up and ask, you know, what basic assumptions about uh, the beneficence and efficacy of foreign aid did you bring into this uh, research project? Um, In other words, did you begin with the assumption that foreign aid, as you suggested in your response, could be good? Did you begin with the assumption that it always creates imbalances and 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 fortifies the already strong and continues to enfeeble the weak. What what were the presumptions that guided your understanding of foreign aid, especially American foreign aid in the Middle East? At least when I started this project, you know, I went in with the assumption that foreign aid could be beneficial, but knowing the ongoing sectarianism in the country, that it could also increase divisions among um, the citizens as well. So that's kind of what I went into this as I began researching. Okay, thank you. Um, So Lily, let's turn to you. Um, And I'm curious to know, as a student of Middle Eastern history, how this particular project affected the way you understand um, some of the most consequential moments in 20th century Middle Eastern history, uh, particularly the age of European colonial intervention. Um, Did this research project alter the way you saw the past? Did the your rereading of the past alter the ways you saw the present? What was the interplay between um, what you did in this report and your own um, long-term historical interests? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I think for me, um, you know, I come from a background of, of journalism and policy. And uh, one thing that's always talked about in terms of the Middle East is the sectarianism. And here in the West, we look at that as kind of a unique problem to the region, something that they deal with. You know, there's a lot of primordialism involved, um, assumptions that this is just something that the Middle East, you know, naturally deals with and will always deal with. But when you look at the way that the Europeans have intervened and the way that the U.S. continues to intervene in the Middle East, you see that there has been a great deal of external um, involvement that has increased the sectarianism, exacerbated it, maybe even caused it in certain areas. So looking at how Europeans worked with minorities to further their goals during the colonial period brings light to the current status of sectarianism in the Middle East. Um, it's not to say that the Europeans are entirely responsible for it, but they certainly exacerbated tensions that were already there. Uh, even though today they and the Americans claim to be working for the best interests of these minority communities. So the legacy of colonialism is, is evident, and uh, this report made that very clear to me. So we're going to try and unpack the, what the effects of that legacy are. But let me ask you um, about one of the most intriguing uh, legal and political uh, concepts to emerge out of the post-World War era, um, and that is the idea of minority rights, um, the idea that was very much on the table at the Paris Peace Conference in 1919 and the, uh, the, the little treaties of Versailles uh, that took rise. Um, what was the interest of Western powers in promoting this idea of minority rights, um, especially in the Middle East? What did you find? So after World War I, you had the collapse of four multinational empires, one of which was the Ottoman Empire. And each had their own system for the different ethnicities within. For the Ottomans, it was the millet system, whereby, for example, um, non-Muslims who were also considered people of the book, that is Jews and Christians, the monotheistic religions, uh, were afforded a certain amount of autonomy for their communities, um, especially around personal status laws. But after the breakup of the Ottoman Empire, the fate of those minorities, the non-Muslim minorities within the former uh, Ottoman Empire territories was unknown. Um, and so you also had the rise of the ethno-national state. Um, so for example, in Eastern Europe with the breakdown of the Austro-Hungarian and the German empires. Um, you had a number of new and enlarged states that were kind of um, dominated by strong nationalistic communities with smaller ethnicities within. Um, and there was the use of population transfer, ethnic partition, and refugee resettlement to create these homogenous nation states as such. Um, one example is the 1923 population exchange between Christians from Turkey and Muslims from Greece, which involved about 2 million people to make Greece more Christian and Turkey more Muslim. Um, you also had Zionism and the idea of creating a nation state for the Jews. Um, and with the Assyrian Christians, which is the population that we're looking at, you had the resettlement of refugees. So. The goal of the Western powers vis-a-vis -vis these minorities was really the stability of the international system and the preservation of their status as kind of the leaders of the international system. Um, and to a lesser extent, so we're talking about Britain and France and to a lesser extent, the US. So they wanted to have the right to intervene in these nations, um, particularly those considered less civilized on behalf of minorities within these within these new countries um, where they found it appropriate. So it wasn't that they would intervene on behalf of any minority that asked for their help. It was where it would benefit their interests. Um, this is not to say that minorities didn't have a reason to complain at all. This is something that, uh, as Phil often said while we were writing this report, it was kind of a difficult needle to thread. So the Christians in Iraq were certainly persecuted um, by ISIS, and they, there was a reason to give them special attention. But at the same time, Western powers were picking and choosing which minorities to protect at any given moment based on their own interests. Um, so the great powers forced minority states through these minority treaties to grant basic rights and freedoms to all their citizens and equitable treatment to minorities. And under the League of Nations, 
minorities could petition if they felt that their rights were being infringed, though the mechanisms for settling disputes were weak because they needed the cooperation of the leadership, you know, of the state that was infringing on the rights of the minorities. So there were 500 petitions sent during the League of Nations 26-year existence on behalf of minorities, and the Assyrians sent a number of those. Mm. So before we get to the Assyrians, um, I'm just curious about, you know, whether you think the idea of minority rights was a flawed one or whether the motivations that prompted Western countries to formulate that uh, particular concept uh, was not purely altruistic uh, in origin and or uh, the implementation of enforcement mechanisms uh, to protect minority rights uh, was itself a flawed process. Was the idea itself a bad one, given that there are going to be majorities in societies that are always going to tend to mistreat, ignore, marginalize minorities? What do you see as the as as what went wrong with minority rights? Was it the core concept, the implementation, the motivations behind it, or that's too coarse a judgment and it was actually over the course of a century a mixed bag in terms of how that concept operated? That's a good question. Um, it's a very complex issue. I, I think that, you know, I personally am in favor of minorities' rights, human rights in general. I just think that it's a very difficult um, kind of concept to impose upon any nation state without also, um, you know, infringing on their sovereignty. Um, which is an issue that we saw here with, you know, with this report that you see with the United Nations today with the responsibility to protect um, clause, which has only been invoked in situations where, um, you know, greater powers will intervene in countries that had been colonized in the past. So you still see that this kind of minority rights um, system is in place to keep keep Western powers on top. And that to me just exposes a great deal of hypocrisy. So uh, I, I'm not saying that, for example, civil service employees or uh, you know, foreign service workers aren't, don't believe in this on a, aren't guided morally in their idea that it's important to protect minorities in other countries. It's just that um, looking at it kind of, I guess, in a realist perspective, in the nation state system, I don't see it as anything but kind of a hypocritical, you know, way of keeping power where it is in the international system. And the same logic applies to human rights as well. Um, sort of the model that took rise really in the wake of the Second World War and beyond. Yeah, I, I think so much of what this paper has shown us is that these contradictions often exist next to each other is that you have, rewinding the clock back a little bit, the French case, which claimed to be a protector of Maronite Christians in the Ottoman Empire for a good part of the 19th century, while at the same time having visible, unavoidable flare-ups of domestic anti-Semitism that showed the very real issues that existed with religious and ethnic minorities in France. Um, I think you see a parallel with that in to the modern conception of human rights, which if we're going to be honest, are not always universally enforced. Writing this paper has also taught us the importance of questioning the idea of America and Western Europe as sort of a universal arbiter of human rights. So interesting because, you know, in at Paris, um, we know that, you know, there were Americans who wanted less than a robust um, uh, definition and means of enforcement for minority rights, because they understood how that could be applied back home, especially to African-Americans. So there are always these domestic considerations. Uh, there are often domestic considerations that factored in, and often outright hypocrisy, promoting the minority rights of those um, uh, upon whom one could bestow strategic favoritism, as you call it, uh, versus you know, one's own discriminatory policies back at home. Absolutely. So if you you look at this from a historical perspective, as you mentioned at Versailles, um, what, what people often forget is that one of Wilson's 14 points was that people, I think, um, forgive me for the exact wording, but that people under the former control of the Turkic Empire, essentially former Ottoman territories, 
had um, a right to live in peace and security. Now, this was obviously trying to secure the rights of um, Arabs, of, as they were referred to at the time, Syrians. The uh, connotation in American political discourse was um, Assyrian Christians from the region. So one of the 14 points that Wilson proposed was giving communal rights to these um, people who have been living under the Ottoman Empire. And as you rightly noted, um, Wilson did not include one of the 14 points talking about um, people in the Philippines living under U.S. control or people living under um, former Spanish possessions in the Caribbean that were then under U.S. control. So I think examining these contradictions and recognizing them for what they are doesn't negate the importance um, on an ideal level of these types of rights. You just have to see these in context. And I think that those contradictions have very much carried through in the present day and the White House's current policy towards Iraq aid. Great. Okay. So, Lily, you've mentioned uh, on a couple of occasions Assyrian Christians, and the report discusses violence against the Assyrian Christian population in the first part of the 20th century. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that violence and whether you think it is reflective of a consistently anti-Christian bias uh, in uh, the area, in the region? Sure. So under the Ottoman Empire, which was Muslim, as we've noted, Christians and Jews had to pay a special tax, but they were afforded a special status as people of the book, and the millet system allowed them a, a good deal of autonomy on personal status issues. Um, there had been a good amount of missionary work done by Europeans uh, within the Ottoman Empire, which increased tensions between Christians and, and the Muslims there. Um, but the rise of nationalism in the 19th century saw a number of territories secede from the Ottoman Empire, including Greece and the Balkans, and that also increased interreligious hostility. So there was certainly kind of a growing sense that Christians should have their own nation states. There was growing, um, there was growing nationalism among those communities within the Ottoman Empire, and then they seceded. Um, at the beginning of World War I, Assyrians sided with the Russians to rise up against the Ottomans, and they were massacred by Turkish troops and Kurdish guerrillas, and uh, Assyrian Christian diaspora groups today claim that up to 750,000 Assyrians were killed. So after that massacre, uh, they were helped by the Brits to settle in refugee camps in Iraq. Most of these Assyrians were from the Hakkari region of Turkey. Um, and then when they kind of moved down after the massacre, they were unable to get back into that region because it became the state of Turkey and the Turks didn't want to let them back in. So the Brits brought them into refugee camps and from there, they drafted them into the British colonial army known as the Levies. And this also increased tensions between the Christians and the Arabs and Kurds living in Iraq. Um, then in 1925, the Assyrian Christian tribal leaders and chiefs met and submitted a petition to the League of Nations um, requesting a direct mandate for, their, for a homeland, uh, clearly expressing their unwillingness to live under Arab Iraqi or Turkish rule. But this did not gain support. They didn't, have the, they didn't gain the right of self-determination. Uh, then in 1933, um, under kind of a complicated set of circumstances, Iraqi troops massacred Assyrians again in and around the village of uh, Simele or Simeil, and they were celebrated for it in a military parade when they returned to Mosul. Um, and they were celebrated for ousting foreign elements. So these Assyrian Christians began to be considered foreign elements, given that they had received supports from the Brits, and they had also, you know, served in their, in their military. So they were seen as extensions of colonial powers, and they were also against any project of Arab nationalism or liberation from colonial powers. So there was pre-existing interreligious hostility, but the intervention of the colonial powers exacerbated it. So what are we to learn from this uh, chapter in the history of uh, minority majority relations in the Middle East. Um, are we to assume uh, that there is a direct line between the persecution uh, and political alliances uh, of Assyrians and uh, the contemporary uh, discourse of Trump administration officials about uh, the um, long suppressed rights of Christians in the region? Um, how are we to make sense of 
of the Trump administration's uh, clear uh, focus and even preference on the rights of Christians uh, over others, particularly in the Middle East. Um, Phil, what does that look like to you? Um, is is there a direct line between the chapter that uh, Lily just mentioned and the current moment? Well, obviously, Trump himself isn't citing events from the early mandate period in policymaking. But we, we do see in um, actions from both the USAID side um, and the broader State Department that really do feed into this idea of non-Muslim minorities within Iraq being particularly deserving recipients of aid um, and particularly aggrieved victims of the violence over the past decade. So there was an important moment that um, struck out to me when writing this paper is that in October 19, um, Mark Green, who was the ambassador of USAID, became the first ever USAID ambassador to speak at a conference called the Values Voters Summit, which is a big gathering of evangelical voters and politically active people within the American Christian community. And he gave a speech that first started off with the importance of religious liberty and then rolled out a pretty large funding mechanism, $400 million, which is about a third of USAID's total budget for Iraq, specifically feeding into what was termed the Genocide Recovery and Persecution Response Program which is a program specifically designed to aid communities, mostly in Northern Iraq, mostly non-Muslims, um, who were the objects of targeted violence by um, Islamic State extremists. Um, so with this announcement of the funding mechanism, you saw a very large scale policy shift um, from the Obama um, policy towards counter IS response and recovery in Iraq, which is very much focused on building a government of national consensus from um, the election of uh, Prime Minister Haider al-Abadi, who was seen as much more of a consensus figure, a less polarizing politician, to the restructuring of the Iraqi security forces around less sectarian lines. Oh, the Obama approach was very much built on strengthening centralized Iraqi institutions and allocating aid based on need. What happened with the Trump administration is that you saw a big shift from this more technocratic approach, which obviously isn't free of flaws or biases, towards a one that was very explicitly biased. Um, and some of the more smaller brands that were distributed by USAID in Iraq, um, this bias really came through. Um, ProPublica did an excellent expose about a few of these grants some of which were um, distributed to smaller organizations that had never handled large-scale governmental grants, um, others of which were distributed to organizations with clear histories of appearing in American Islamophobic media. Um, and they attracted a large amount of criticism of veteran USAID staff who felt that the overall mission um, of the organization of the country, which for the last 17 years in Iraq has tried to avoid um, coming off as this kind of bias, as, as trying to avoid coming off with a pro-Christian bias. These veteran employees of USAID felt that this mission was being distorted. And obviously, higher ups in USAID disputed this, but as was often the case with um, controversies in the Trump administration, Trump very explicitly said in a speech to an, another um, evangelical group that there was this type of interference taking place. At one such speech, he said um, something to the effect of nobody would be providing um, aid to people in the Middle East in a way that would be making you happy, you being his evangelical Christian audience. So Trump essentially just came out and admitted this policy was um, in effect. And what this shift has done, um, has it's bought into a very deceptively simple dichotomy of non-Muslim minorities in Iraq as uniquely deserving victims of assistance. And when you look at the legacy of violence in that country, not just during the ISIS campaign, but over the past several decades, that picture becomes much more muddled. Um, in Nainua province, which we profile as an example in this paper, um, Nainua province has seen waves of successive displacements getting really hearkening back, not just um, to the 1960s and the, the, the consolidation of the Ba'athist state, but even to the period that Lily was talking about before. 
you have large um, waves of displacements and counter displacements from Sunni Arab minorities being moved into that area by Saddam Hussein um, in the context of a large infrastructure project, in this case, the construction of the Mosul Dam, to waves of counter displacement um, after the collapse of the Ba'athist regime um, to um, Sunnis, um, or predominantly um, Sunni forces, obviously led by the extremist Islamic State, um, displacing non-Sunnis from that area to the fall of 2017, um, after the Kurdistan regional government um, declared sovereignty over that area um, and declared an a referendum for an independent Kurdistan in which um, the essential Iraqi forces um, and uh, militias affiliated with the state displaced other peoples from this area. So without going into too much into the details about these decades of recent displacements, you have a very complex security arrangements where a range of communities, whether they're Christian, Muslim, Yazidi, um, Sunni, Shi'i, Kurd, Arab, um, have a, a web of alliances that range from militias affiliated with the Iraqi state, more centralized Iraqi security forces, and village um, security groups that differ from place to place. Um, the picture is just simply far more complicated than the Muslim, non-Muslim divide that is put forward by the Trump administration and that's really reflect, reflected in these types of aid policies. But it's also important to um, note that this is not simply an um, episode of the White House putting their thumb on the scale and only the White House putting their thumb on the scale. Um, in 2000, um, in the 2017-2018 Congress, the Iraq and Syria Genocide Relief and Accountability Act was passed, um, HR 390, which specifically sets aside a funding mechanism for what they term as victims of IS genocide. Um, this would be mostly non-Muslim victims of um, IS genocide, Christians and Yazidis. And importantly, this act um, describes faith-based charities and faith-based actors as important donors and alleviating the sufferings of these people, even though as we just talked, um, about before, um, IS's victims range from um, Shi'is massacred in large numbers in Iraq um, to fellow Sunni Muslims who were um, killed in large numbers because of their opposition to the group. Again, it's, it feeds into a deceptively simple um, dichotomy that simply doesn't reflect the complexity um, in the country. Right. So I guess uh, the interesting recurrent question is, to what extent is this born of the Trump administration or... Um, to what extent is the Obama administration an outlier? Um, and here I'm thinking back to uh, the Bush administration um, and its own strong ties and alliances with the Christian evangelical world. And then going back to uh, what Lily was talking about, which is the British um, preference um, and strategic favoritism, as you term it, for uh, Assyrian Christians. And this really brings us to the question of strategic favor, favoritism, um, which you argue that the Bush, the, excuse me, the Trump administration um, exemplifies. How new is the phenomenon um, and how persistent has it been in American political history? Um, so as Phil noted, strategic favoritism itself is not entirely new. Uh, but the degree to which it is implemented by particular pre presidential administrations in Iraq is new. Foreign aid can come in multiple forms, but in the context of Iraq, the changes in strategic favoritism is reflected most strongly in the budgeting and allocation of province-specific aid to Iraq. For the last fiscal year of the Bush administration, the USAID budget for province-specific aid was $54 million, and 15 of the 19 provinces in Iraq gained some amount of aid from this. In contrast, in 2016, under the Obama administration, the budget was $76 million, but only 12 provinces received province-specific aid. Under Trump, not only was the budget reduced to $55 million, but only 10 of the 19 provinces received this aid, these 10 provinces being primarily Northern Rock that contains ethnic minorities. It is important to stress that over time, province-specific aid, which is in addition to the $354 million genocide recovery and pers persecution response initiative that Phil mentioned, has been geographically narrow to only include provinces in northern and central Iraq. The Shi-dominant South has largely been excluded in recent years. So I just I just wanted to jump in and add a bit of um, detail from an interview that I did with a 
an employee at a U.S. funded organization that works with the U.S. government who I spoke with a number of people for this article and all of them wanted to be on background given the sensitivity of the topic um, and the situation at the State Department. Obviously, this was before the election, um, but I imagine they, you know, that probably will continue on for a while, the sensitivity. So the person that I spoke with is a Christian. He grew up in the U.S., Christian from Iraq, but his family is from Iraq and he still has many cousins there. And he just wanted to, um, he took great exception to this piece that we're writing, um, saying that the Christian community had indeed faced specific threats not just from IS, but even before, you know, since the 2003 invasion. And he was very um, forceful in his telling of the story that Christians had been consistently asking for more attention from the U.S. and that it wasn't given to them under Bush or under Obama because of this, I think Phil mentioned before, this, um, you know, very purposeful avoidance of any kind of favoritism of Christian, of the Christian minority in Iraq. So he was saying, you know, it wasn't until Trump and Pence that finally we had an administration that came in and gave us the recognition that we needed and that we deserved. Um, so I, I thought that was kind of interesting, you know, that um, there was this attempt by the U.S. not to at all appear to be favoring the Christians, even if they needed it. There was kind of this sect blindness in the way that they dealt with the different sects in Iraq. So how does this um, particular case study of Iraq fit into a larger pattern, maybe the larger pattern of Trump foreign aid, uh, foreign policy commitments um, in the Middle East or a Trump doctrine writ large? Uh, what does Iraq show us about Trump, about American foreign policy, um, about Western attitudes towards minorities? What, what, what do you think we can learn from this one case um, of Iraq? Well, I think first you have the staying power of policies that I think are very much motivated at the heart right by domestic political concerns. Um, Iraq is just one case in um, a series of Trump foreign policy decisions that he has made over the last several years, um, motivated almost exclusively by um, appeasing key demographics in his base. Um, and that's through Pence, the evangelical Christian vote, um, which he always thought he was on shaky territory with during going back to the Republican primaries. Um, like I said before, um, after some of these, these policy changes, he would give speeches to evangelical groups saying, things very explicitly, like, I hope this makes you happy. Um, he didn't just say this about um, or changes in Iraq aid. He said it multiple times about um, uh, his attitude towards the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, about um, moving the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem. Um, in, in the Middle East policy, as in most of aspects of his presidency, Trump has taken a very transactional approach. But at the same time, the, the tanker truck of government once it's turned around is very hard to stop or steer. And because of the influence over the last four years that Trump and Pence have had on the bureaucracy, um, this type of paradigm that Lily mentioned um, has been one that, other, that one that other administrations have avoided has very much become sort of de rigueur for a lot of American foreign policy in Iraq. Um, Multi-year grants that will be carried on for a very long time were formed with this policy in mind of um, a sort of a, a Muslim, non-Muslim conflict being the axis on which the country turns. And I think it's very important to note the long-term impact of these decisions. So what, what kinds of expectations can one have for the Biden administration if, if the kinds of decisions that have been made um, uh, will um, take years of undoing? Um, what what's a reasonable expectation? And I guess the question is really broader. What is a desired mix of factors in American foreign policy and general foreign aid in particular? Um, we have a realist perspective that acknowledges um, certain um, difficult or unmovable factors. Um, we have sort of the uh, uh, the spirit of altruism, which we think should inform um, our attitudes with other human beings. Um, we have 
economic interests um, uh, that are quite pronounced and indeed have been since the age of European colonialism. Um, and we have national security considerations, which I suppose connect back to uh, the realist stance. All of these factors inform in some sense um, determinations about foreign policy. So what's the right mix for the Biden administration to adopt? And what is a reasonable set of expectations about what it can do or perhaps undo uh, of uh the Trump administration policies. Phil, maybe we'll start with you. From Biden himself, there's a fair amount of evidence to go off of as what his views towards Iraq policy might be in the first months of his administration. Um, he was on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for years. He had a he was sort of the point person for Iraq under Obama. There is a lot of printed record that shows where he stands on these issues. And well, it, much of this evidence points away from the direction that the Trump administration has taken. Biden still does engage with the idea of these essentialist sectarian divides um, in his approach to the country. So um, most recently at the height of the Iraq war um, in the mid 2000s, Biden co-wrote an op-ed in which he proposed partitioning the country into three states. One would be, would be majority Sunni, one would be majority Shi'i, one would be majority Kurdish. The idea being that Iraqis of different sectarian identities could not possibly live together. Um, even though before the American invasion in 2003 and a majority of marriages, um, per, for instance, in, in large Iraqi cities were between um, members of different religious sects. So um, in addition, when, when Obama put Biden in charge of coordinating the American withdrawal from Iraq from 2009 until 2011, Biden fell heavily in the camp of um, favoring uh, then Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki in a close um, parliamentary election. He was basically the tipping point in the American government that allowed Maliki to stay in power. Now, hindsight is obviously 2020, but Maliki is largely held responsible for some of the more egregiously sectarian political moves that disenfranchised Iraqi Sunnis, um, violently repressed Iraqi Sunni political organizations, and in many ways paved the way for an organization like ISIS to gain not a lot of support, but enough support to be um, decisively able to route Iraqi security forces in 2014, 2015. So obviously Biden has a mixed record on this issue, but I think the most important takeaway from this is that the Biden administration would most likely be far less involved in the daily workings of the Iraqi um, aid apparatus than and. Um, than the Trump-Pence administration is and what and um, is. Um, Biden, in his approach towards American involvement in the greater Middle East, has argued towards a much lighter footprint. Um, in the summary of interests that um, you just mentioned, um, the long list of priorities that America has to continue uh, consider, Biden has repeatedly fallen on the national security side, the idea of maintaining small military footprints enough to counter um, active threats to American or American interest in the regions and not that much else. But uh, the lack of an involved White House, I don't think means the lack of an involved aid apparatus. Um, there is and was a um, well-established sets of criteria for the allocation of humanitarian aid based on need in a range of circumstances. The, the post-World War II world um, of humanitarian aid has um, really birthed this um, huge body of academic work that across geographic contexts tries to consider the needs of beneficiaries in a somewhat technocratic way. Now, obviously, this technocratic approach is not completely free of bias. But um, if you're asking for recommendations for future U.S. policy, I think turning the clock back to um, the Obama administration's support of a more inclusive Iraqi state, um, a more technocratic um, distribution of aid is a good start. So maybe we can follow up with that. Monica, if you were advising the new president, um, what would you advise in terms of altering the geographic distribution of American aid to Iraqi provinces? Yeah, so if, um, I would recommend Biden to give more countrywide aid and rather than 
um, province specific, especially as Iraq is now entering an economic crisis and it owes money to its neighbors. And there's multiple Iranian-backed militias in Iraq. Now is not kind of the time to favor one geographic region over another in Iraq and rather foster um, more growth in the community and not divide the country as much through foreign aid. I don't want to say win the hearts and minds of the people via foreign aid, but we're currently right now it's kind of doing more damage than it is good. Right. The era of Iraqis greeting American soldiers or diplomats with flowers and candy, I think, has come and gone. Um, yeah. Not likely to see that anytime soon. Lily, if you were advising President Biden, um, what would you advise based on the research you undertook? So I think um, as Monica and Phil pretty much summed it up, but as Monica mentioned, I think that a more equitable distribution of aid among the different groups is key. I mean, I think as unfortunate as it is that uh, Christians had felt before that they were ignored, even though they did have a specific case, um, this kind of policy of sect blindness of, you know, working with all sects equally in the country, I think is probably the best way of dealing with any country if possible. Um, otherwise, we're just falling back into the same patterns that the colonial powers did, you know, in terms of the minorities treaties and the League of Nations minorities petitions to intervene where we see fit, when we see fit. It's the same with the responsibility to protect. I just find it very difficult to think about a way to apply any of these principles universally. Right. So these are good ideas, but selectively implemented and implemented with the desire to um, enhance the interests of the protector, as it were. And that's a recurrent motif you're suggesting to us. Right. That we should try to avoid if possible. So what's so interesting in your work is to demonstrate that two seemingly contradictory things are true. On one hand, you uh, unearth this very interesting uh, colonial history, the history of colonial intervention in the Middle East and the practice of strategic favoritism, as you call it, which creates a kind of continuity that exists up to the present day. And on the other hand, you talk about the exceptionalism of the Trump administration and its privileging of Christian minorities uh, propelled forward by its political alliance with Christian evangelicals in ways that we have not seen before. And your report suggests that these two, two seemingly contradictory phenomena coexist with one another. Right. As we move towards conclusion, um, I'd like to um, ask you to talk a little bit about the work you uh, three have done, uh, not only on this research project, but with a group of undergraduates, a group of about 10 undergraduates who have been uh, working as a team, both individually and then collectively, on a research project. Uh, that explores a similar subject. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about that uh, that group and what they're working on? Back in, I guess it was winter quarter, we started by um, gathering a group of students, whoever was interested for kind of a um, meeting to discuss this idea of a project on soft power, U.S. soft power in the Middle East and how it was done and you know how it would be done by Trump who at that time had cut funding to UNRWA for example the, the refugee agency for the Palestinians um, you had Nikki Haley at the UN saying that the US would only provide foreign aid to groups that fully supported the US and that were you know on board with all of the US policies so it seemed like there was a, a shift in US um, US aid and how it would look specifically in the Middle East. And we got a group of probably a dozen students at that first meeting, which then narrowed down to about 10. We had a um, reading group for the first quarter, which was very interesting. And then each student sort of took their own um, topic. And over the summer, everyone wrote a research paper. And we've been really impressed with the papers that they've come up with. Hopefully, we will be wrapping everything up um, by the end of this quarter, along with an introduction to describe the, the whole project and the approach that we took. The undergraduate projects really address a lot of different facets of US policy in the Middle East. From, for instance, um, USAID's programming on childhood literacy in Morocco 
and the educational assumptions that they took there to um, U.S. support for police and security services um, through disbursements from both USAID and the Department of Defense and the ways in which those programs have mirrored um, approaches towards American policing at home. Um, these types of projects really, I think, seek to examine an overall shift in American foreign policy um, as American domestic policy shifted towards more market-based approaches towards um, political problems um, and social issues in the late 1970s. This volume is tentatively titled American Foreign Policy in the Middle East in the Neoliberal Age, and we really seek to chronicle a lot of different aspects of this shift. And like Lily said, um, we've been really impressed with the work that everyone has done. Um, I think the group is both composed of really amazing individual researchers and is also um, very good at working supportively as a team on a project this complex and far-reaching. So um, in the middle of a pretty difficult year, we're very impressed with how this has all gone. Well, I think we have come to the end of our time. I'd like to thank you, Lily, Phil, and Monica for joining us on Then and Now. Um, it's been a most illuminating time with you. And thank you to our listeners out there. Let us know your thoughts on this or other episodes of Then and Now by emailing us at luskincenter at history.ucla.edu, L-U-S-K-I-N, center at history.ucla.edu. Special thanks to our executive producer, Maya Ferdman. Uh, until next time, wishing you a pleasant and safe day. Thank you for joining us this week on Then and Now. Then and Now is brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy, where we study change to make change. For more on our work, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at our handle, at Luskin History. Our show is produced by Maya Ferdman and David Myers, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening.